0: amen well remember back in 1999 close of the year just about today they told us that at midnight the world was going to stop planes were going to fall out of the air banks were going to fail Medical facilities would cease to operate. Our computers would go haywire. That was the only thing they were right about, by the way. I was thinking about that the other day, that, oh, my goodness, this whole world held its breath for the arrival of Y2K. 24 years later, God is still gracious. Amen? He's good to us. And he always will be, if you have your Bibles. We're a thin group today, so uh, uh, I, I assume that it's because a lot of people are not feeling well and other people may have uh, ran, away. ran away for the weekend, that's right, or just decided to stay in the house. Those of you who are watching online, we welcome you. Last week, uh, we noticed about 15 minutes into the uh, into the service that... Uh, Our live feed was not going out on Facebook. It went out everywhere else that we go, but not on Facebook. Uh, So I came in this week to fix it, and it was working fine. So maybe Y2K came late. I don't know. But it's working well today. We're glad to have you with us. If you're watching from home, Uh, if you're watching on the road, stop, pull over, watch the rest of the service, and then uh, that'll be great. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 18. John chapter 21, we're going to start at verse 18. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? It's a kind of a tradition of ours around here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was uh, to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to them, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at a table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? follow me. Thank you. You may be seated. So Peter said to Jesus, looking at this brother, this other disciple, what's what's going to happen to him? What what are you going to what's what's going on with him? What's going to happen? And Jesus answer to him was. Mind your own business. (laughs) Essentially, if you read in the line, mind your own business. What what business is that of yours? If I decide that he should stay alive until I return, uh, you follow me. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about Judas. Don't worry about the rest of these guys. You need to focus on me. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, he said these words. He said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing I do. One time was the mission pastor down in, at Calvary Chapel in uh, Western, eastern Massachusetts. He wrote a book called 101 Ways to Simplify Your Life. If I remember right, one of the chapters was entitled, Don't Spend a Lot of Money on Books that Tell You How to sin, sin, s- Simplify Your Life. The book was reasonably helpful, and it was immensely entertaining, but it was a few lines in the preface, in the introduction, that really captured my attention. Uh, And and I've never forgotten them. Here they are. The first one is this. This generation is overchoiced. This generation is overchoiced. We simply have too many choices. If you don't believe me, Watch a man who's been asked by his wife to stop by the store on the way home and pick up a bar of soap. He parks his car, runs into the store, and runs down to aisle six that says soap. And he turns into the aisle and looks down to the aisle as far as the eye can see, and there's nothing but soap. White soap, pink soap, blue soap, moisturizing soap. Soap for dry skin, soap for oily skin, scented soap, unscented soap, non allergenic soap, saddle soap, pet soap, won't make your kid cry soap. He knows his wife wants soap, but what kind of soap? He picks up a bar of soap, hoping against hope that he's got something that will make her happy. And just as he does, the phone rings. It's his wife saying, hey, while you're in the store, pick up a bag of chips. Thank you. Love you. See you later. He walks down to aisle 12, turns and looks at a row of chips that goes from the registers to the meat counter. Plain chips, kettle chips, old-fashioned chips, sun chips, corn chips, tortilla chips, quinoa chips, jalapeno chips, sour cream, salt and vinegar, sea salt, ruffles, cheddar, zesty cheddar, flaming hot chips, barbecue chips, cracked pepper chips, Cheetos, Fritos, nachos, Doritos, and Tostitos. I remember when, no, I didn't remember all that. I had it written down. (laughs) Oh, do you? <laughs> she said a lot of chips. <laughs> I remember when my friend Michael Chege from Kenya came to visit me. This was a number of years ago. And uh, he wanted to pick up some gifts to take home to his family, to his sweetheart. He was engaged to be married at that time. <coughs> and his family. And I said, well, let's run over to Walmart. And... Uh, we, we walked into Walmart, and at first he was just amazed, which was soon followed by complete paralysis. He did not buy one thing in that store. He said, there are too many things. I, I can't make a decision. He said, in Kenya, we have lots of soap. But only one kind. Borthwick further suggests that regardless of how minute, how small, each decision we make during our day, each choice that we make, takes a little bit of energy. Not a lot of energy, but a little energy. A little effort. Imagine, Borthwick says, that you begin your day with an empty backpack. You carry it on your back. There's nothing in it. But during the course of the day, every choice you make... You're required to pick up a little pebble, you know, pea gravel, that little stuff, and just drop it into the backpack. Every time you are confronted with a decision, with a choice that you have to make, you drop that thing in your backpack. By the end of the day, he suggests, you'll be carrying on your back so much expended energy that you arrive home exhausted, only to be greeted with, what would you like for supper? Second point Borthwick makes is related to the first. This generation is over choice. That's number one. Number two, this generation finds it very, very difficult to make long term commitments. It's extremely difficult to convince people to make long term commitments to anything. Why? Because we're a generation that has to keep our options open, because we have so many choices, we have to keep our options open lest a better opportunity is presents itself. This revelation explains so much to me after fifty plus years in the ministry of trying to manage various programs and projects and ministries and, and, and missions and efforts and outreaches and everything else because we have so many people who will rush to the sign-up sheet and sign it, and they will be completely committed to it for a week or two. And then something better comes along. Something more exciting, something more thrilling, something shinier. This issue emerges on the job market, church ministry, church attendance, and even more sadly, and most unfortunate of all, in marriages. My thrust for this morning as we look forward to a new year and new opportunities to see what God wants to do is that we develop the capacity to focus. To focus. Long-term focus. Long-term focus on the right things. Things that actually matter. I think you will agree with me. We are confronted with so many things in our world, so many different things we can do, so many more activities that we can engage in, so many more things to grab our interest, and so many things that in the, in, in the scope of eternity do not matter. But all of those things consume energy and interest. And focus that might better be spent on things eternal. I'm sure next week, Pastor Brian is going to lay out the vision for 2024. That's his responsibility. I'm not going to impinge on that. But I want to share with us this morning a few principles. I just sat down and I just made out a list of things that I really believe that each and every one of us, you and me, we need to prioritize in our focus in the coming year. You know, there's so many things. I, I don't know how many times over the years. I, I, it's probably incalculable. How many times I've heard people say about very important things. I would love to do that, but I just don't have the. I don't have the time. The reality is this, is we all have the same exact amount of time. The difference is, is how we prioritize that time. What do we put at the head of the list? What is most important? Important enough that I will sacrifice the low-value targets, if you will, in order to accomplish things that matter in eternity so I've written down a few things they're are essentials they're simple you might even think they're simplistic but they're so very very important and so I've just written there's seven things I won't spend a lot of time on any of them because I think you're sharp enough to get the gist of it the first one is this pursue God not the things of this world. Pursue God, not the things of this world. In the book of Amos, chapter 5, and verse 4, thus saith the Lord of the host of Israel Seek me and live. Just let those words settle down for a minute, because they speak volumes to us. Seek me and live. We have come to understand, I hope you've come to understand, that we only have life in Jesus. The world, come on and live it up with us, but that which the world offers does not give life. It eats life. It consumes life. It destroys life. It draws us away often from the eternal. God is the life giver. That's why Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden after they had sinned. They were cast away from the presence of God. It was in that garden where the tree of life was that they were in his presence. And he said, you cannot live in the presence of a tree that gives life while you are broken and ruined. God is the life giver. But as sinful creatures, our hearts are naturally prone to go away from the creator, to turn, to, to turn our attention to other places. Uh, uh, and, and our souls were made. We were made as living souls. God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living soul. And his purpose for that, the creation of that man and that woman, excuse me, was that they would pursue God and that they would walk in partnership with God and they would enjoy life together as co-regents in the earth with God. And it's only as we pursue Him that we have life. You know, God tried everything. The book of Amos is an interesting book if you want to Take time to read it sometimes. In the book of Amos, we read that God tried over and over and over again to get the attention of his people. He allowed them to experience famine, drought, pestilence, and yet, as God says in Amos chapter 4, verse 11, he says, you, you just will not return to me. Seek me, he says, and live. We we ought to that ought to be the heart of our evangelistic thrust as we uh, thrust as we reach out to people seek God and live. You cannot you can you're you're just a breath you're just a moment in this life. And all that this life that says you know you can own this and you can be fulfilled you can have this career and you can be fulfilled you can have the, all of this money and all of this wealth and all of this power and all of this fame and die. seek me and live I think sometimes you could I could probably just go on with this ever we we, we seek out counsel and we seek out advice where should I work what should I do uh, what's going to be the best opportunity where should I invest uh, what kind of medicine should I take what kind of supplements should I take how should I live my life we seek all of this counsel from the experts But you know, there's not an expert on this earth that can give you life. It's only as we seek Him that we may live. These words ought to get our attention. We're only going to find life, meaningful life, as we seek Him. As pressure from the Pharisees and the Romans were beginning to grow, uh, during the end of Jesus' ministry, people started to drop away. They started, excuse me, they started to, you know, drift off. The crowds were becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. They they had had their fill of loaves and fishes and 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 such things. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, "Will you go away too?" And Peter said to him, "Master, to whom would we go?" For you alone have the words of life. Can, Can I remind you of that? Where would you go to find life? Pursue God. And remember that the world really offers us nothing. Nothing of any eternal value. Number two, fear God. And not men. Fear God and not men. Do you know why cancel culture is so effective? Because we fear men. We fear they might cancel us. We fear of what they might think about us. We fear about what they might say about us. What they might write about us. Oh my gosh, I opened my Facebook and this guy said something really nasty about me. We fear... Cancellation. We fear this cancel culture because we really fear men more than we fear God. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 19 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. You know what the fear of man leads to? Same thing as seeking after the things of this world, it leads to death. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whatever and whoever has it rests satisfied. He rests satisfied. I heard someone say one time, "The man who fears God fears nothing else." Our God is holy, and the Lord, and He is the Lord God Almighty. When I when I think of the power that my God holds. I can't help but fear him and reverence him. I want to speak to this just for a minute, not, not for too long, but listen to me. There, there is a gospel that's being preached today that's teaching us that Jesus is our buddy. Oh, we're just, we're just tight, me and Jesus. He's our buddy. He's, he's, uh, he, uh, you know He doesn't get too excited about my sin and my lifestyle and all that stuff because Jesus and I are tight. He's cool. Can I remind you of something? He is also the Lord of the earth, the ancient of days, who will judge the nations with a rod of iron. When the Bible says, I, I love it when, uh, when people say this, well, oh, you know, when it says fear God, uh, that really means to reverence him. Do you believe we should reverence God? I do too. But the word that is used when it says the fear of the Lord, the, the root word of that is phobos okay, that's not reverence, that's terror, that's fear. If you'll notice in the Bible, whenever God deigned to appear to men, what was the first thing that happened to them? They, yeah, first of all, don't be afraid, (laughs) okay? To the guy who's on his face on the ground trembling, God has to say, don't be afraid. John was on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day and suddenly you heard behind him a great voice and he tr- like the sound of many waters and he turned and he looked the risen Lord in the face and he fainted. He fell down like a dead man. Listen to me. I'm glad that our God is a fearsome God because not only... Do we fear him and should we? When our enemies are confronted with him, they flee in terror. God says, he who comes nigh unto me must reverence me. Absolutely, we should reverence God. And I'm not talking that we should walk around trembling all the time because we view God as sitting up on his throne with a lightning bolt in his hand, just waiting for you to mess up. Because that's the vision that a lot of people have. But we should not approach the throne of God... Carelessly. We should fear God. Let me tell you what... A.W. Tozer said. A.W. Tozer said... It is impossible... To keep our moral practices sound... And our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous and inadequate. You know, I hear people say all the time, oh, you know, all this preaching about sin and hell, and, and, and I, I don't know, that's just terrible. You shouldn't do that. People will be afraid. I hope so. I hope so. I'm going to be preaching next week. In, uh, in Salem, Connecticut with a fellow some of you may know, uh, Jonathan Cakley. going to be preaching down at Jonathan's Church, and I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm doing some preparation from that. And you know, back in uh, the days just before the, the first Great Awakening in America, there was a fellow by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards was preaching in Northampton, and he traveled down to Enfield, Connecticut, where he preached at a Baptist church in Enfield, Connecticut. And uh, it was a very, uh, kind of a lackadaisical congregation. They weren't really, they just, they just did their religious thing. They weren't really all fired up about their faith. And Jonathan Edwards stood in the pulpit and preached a message. Here's the title. Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. I want you to know they had revival that morning. If I have to scare you out of hell, I'm up for it. I would rather a man go to heaven running away from hell than to go to hell because he couldn't be less interested in heaven. All of humanity is faced with one great decision, and it's not a little pebble that you put in a backpack, it's a decision that has to do with eternity. And we ought to fear God. When we're making our decisions about our behaviors and our choices and the things we do, there is ample reason that we would behave differently because of our fear of God. I think this, I said earlier, someone has said, if a man fears God, he fears nothing else. I'm afraid the opposite of true. If a man doesn't fear God, he's afraid of everything else. Fear God and not men. Number three, love God and not the world. Love God and not the world. Do not love the world, 1 John says in chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world... If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God will live forever. Now, let me clarify something. When John says, do not love the world... He's not saying that we should not love people. He's not talking about people. He's not talking about sinners who are outside the family of God. We ought love them. God loves them, as we know from John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's not the people in the world. We're called to love them. And to demonstrate our love for them. It's the world system. It's the system. It's the system of nations and governments who are standing against God. Who have rebelled against God. Whose measure is to dominate and to control and to destroy men's lives. We are not to love and depend upon the world system. Because I will tell you, I've said it many times and people get all worked up when I say it. I believe our government is demon possessed right now. I believe it's entirely driven by demonic forces and if you don't believe me, hang on a while you'll figure it out. Driven by demonic forces. Uh, I love this nation, I do, but it's the people that we need to love. The nations of the world are going to pass away in a fervent heat. And that includes the United States of America. There's not a nation going to be left standing except one. And that is the kingdom of our God. And before him all nations will fall. What is the object of your affections? Is it power? Recognition? Hobbies? Money? Fame, fortune. Not too long ago, I was visiting my son in Georgia, and we went on a walking tour of Savannah one day. And uh, wow, the cinder in the old section of Savannah, there's some gorgeous houses there. Just beautiful, old homes. And I remember looking at one particular home, and we walked around it, and we walked up on the portico. and And just for a moment, it went through my mind, I could deal with something like this then I was reminded that a house is what not is not what life is all about and cars and bank accounts and IRAs and 401ks and the world seeks to seduce us into a love affair with the things that this world has to offer Someone tells the story about a man, of course it's not a true story, it's just an illustration, about a very, very rich man who loaded up all his gold and took it to the pearly gates where he was met with St. Peter. And we know St. Peter's not guarding the pearly gates, let's just go with the story. And he brought two big bags of gold and said, Here, I brought my gold. And Peter pulled out a piece and looked at it and said, You're going to buy your way into heaven with pavement? When I first fell in love with Barbara, no one doubted that I loved her. I wanted to be around her all the time. I was always trying to figure out ways to get her to go somewhere with me, do something. I even fabricated some events sometimes with her parents so we could get together. I confess, sadly. I wanted to do everything I could to please her because I kind of thought I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. You know, the same is true with our love for God. Our minds and our hearts should be occupied with the thoughts of, how can I please him? How can I live my life to please Him? Not because I'm going to be any more spiritual. Not because I'm going to be any more saved. Not because heaven's going to be a little bit better for me if I work hard to please Him. But because He's done so much for me. Because He's extended so much grace and mercy to me. I don't know about you, but I think it took an awful lot of mercy to save me. And, of course, we ought to love his people and be concerned about their eternal destiny. We need to look at them, those that God loves. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were absolutely convinced that God loved them more than he loved the common people. They were absolutely convinced that they were better, they were more spiritual, they were more holy. And God loved them the best. And it's probably true. That's why Jesus was born in the presence of shepherds and not priests and Pharisees and kings. That's why Jesus hung out with fishermen and not financiers. God doesn't love you better because you act better or dress better or smile better or smell better. God loves you because he loves you. And we ought also To love those who are broken and ruined. Because God loves them. Number four. Believe God. And not the deceiver. Believe God. And not the the deceiver. Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees, says this. He says, you are of your father the devil. You know, they had said, oh, we're the children of Abraham. And Jesus said, no. <laughs> you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning but does and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the follower Uh, The the father of lies. Say this with me. He is a liar. liar. Everything he says is a lie. Even if it's rubbed up against the truth, he's a liar. I've met a few liars in my life. And one of the things that's so remarkable about about a liar is that he lies even when he doesn't have to. It's just a part of his character. It's just a part of his nature. You don't believe anything that he says. He's trained you not to believe him. And then he, he gets all hurt and says, you don't trust me. Mom and dad, you ever heard that from a teenager? You don't trust me. And you go, Give me one reason I should believe God. I recently heard a story. Wet my whistle a little bit here. I recently read a story about a man in 1938 who spent a rather large amount of money on an expensive weather barometer. And uh, he unwrapped it. And as he looked at it, He's standing, I think he was on Long Island, if I read, remember the story correctly. He looked at it, and it was pinned right on the bottom on the word hurricane. And he looked around, and he said, well, this thing's not working. And He shook it, and he banged it on the thing. It still said hurricane. Well, he was hot. This stupid thing doesn't work. And so the next morning on his way to work he fired off a hot letter to the manufacturer and said you sent me a piece of junk and he dropped it in the mailbox on his way to work only to come home the next day to find out that a hurricane had struck and destroyed everything that he had. He believed what he saw rather than this device that said a hurricane's coming. As believers... Sometimes we just don't want to believe the truth. When when life and scripture collide, which one do you trust? I had a very wise man say to me one time, he said, Son, if your belief and the scriptures ever contradict one another, change what you believe. Believe God and not the liar. The scriptures tell us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But our nature is to move toward unbelief. Never, ever forget that the liar will whisper in your ear. And that whisper will always lead you to believe something that is not true. Started out very early in the history of mankind, when a serpent slithered into the garden and whispered in Eve's ear, Hath God said? Nah. That can't be true. Believe me, instead, all of our problems, if we get right down to the root, if we get right down to the bottom of it, (coughs) excuse me, All of our struggles come when we fail to believe what God says in his word. Unbelief is the root. Unbelief is the root of all of our sin. The liar told Eve a lie. And she believed it. And it led to death. The enemy will lie to you. He will contradict God's word. He will challenge. He will speak God's word and say everything just as God said it. Almost. That's what he tried to do with Jesus. Hath God not said? Jesus was quick to say, finish the passage, buddy. Say the whole thing. Believe God. Do you ever wake up one morning and say, I don't feel very spiritual today. Nobody? Wow. Okay, then neither do I. Do you ever feel like maybe you're not really saved? That maybe... God really can't love you and save you and deliver you, that, that maybe you've, you've messed up too bad, you've fallen too far, you've goofed up too much, and, and the enemy is quick to get in your ear and say, oh, boy, you've messed up this time. That's it. God is done with you. Believe what God says. What does he say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never, for any reason or by any means, will I ever desert you. I love you with a love that cannot be earned, cannot be bought. I love you. Number five, obey God and not your appetites. Now, I'm not talking about eating here, but it may apply. Obey God, but not your appetites. For 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 9 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. That's a simple way of saying this. I need to learn to say no to myself. But I want, but I need, but just this once, It's okay. I need to learn. You know, we're pretty good, not as good as we should be, probably. We're pretty good at saying no to telemarketers. No. Not interested. Don't call back. We're pretty good at saying no to door to door salesmen. No, I don't need another vacuum cleaner. We're pretty good at saying no to our children. All the children here should say amen. The guy that we have the most problem saying no to is me. I walk through the kitchen. Do you know that my kids got my wife a bottle of Whitman sampler chocolates for Christmas? And do you know that my wife leaves it sitting right on the kitchen table? Right out where I have to walk by it every day, a hundred times a day. And my brain says, Michael, you're a diabetic. And my appetite says, oh man, would I like a piece of chocolate right now? anybody relate? Sure, I'll take another order of french fries. What could it hurt? You sit over there and just be a supportive partner here. I'm telling you, I really need to watch my diet, and it's one of the hardest things in the world I I do to say no. Because doggone it, you know what I figured out? All of the flavor is in food I'm not supposed to eat. But there's a lot more important things that we need to learn to say no to. There's all sorts of temptations, there's all sorts of callings, there's all sorts of things that do not benefit us at all. And God has said no. Let me let me let me just put it this way. I won't spend a lot of time on this because the time's getting away from me, and I got one more to do, or two. Uh, but listen, everything in the Bible. As the people of God were walking through the wilderness and all of those statutes and all of those things, everything God said no to were things that would kill them. And yet, everything that God says to us, he warns us again. He says, no, don't involve yourself in that. Don't succumb to that temptation. Don't give in to that thing. Don't go here. Don't go there. Don't listen to that. We all, God, you want to lick the red off of my candy again? I can't have any fun. I can't do anything. And God says, no, because that will kill you. In the end, it will destroy your life. In the end, it will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your economy. It will destroy your relationships. And I go, but God, I want to do stuff that will kill me. You laugh. That's what we're saying. Obey God. You know why? God says, seek me and live. He can say, listen to me. And live. Obey me. And live. Number six. Serve God. Not yourself. Serve God, not yourself. Isaiah 6 says this. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go from me? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. You know, when Jesus was... Do you know when the only time Jesus ever taught purely by example? Not by a parable, not by a story, not by some deep spiritual truth. You know what he was doing? He was on his knees with a bowl of water and a towel. And he was washing the nasty feet of his disciples. And he said, you don't understand this now, but you will. You don't understand what I'm doing, but you will. And he said to them, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, do what I'm doing to you. Serve. If anyone wants to be great in the kingdom of God, he must learn to serve. And if he really wants to be great, he must serve, say it with me, everybody. The highest pinnacle. There are men who lust after power even in the church. I want to be a bishop. I want to be an elder. I want to be a deacon. I want to be a pastor. I want to be... You are begging to be a servant. You may not even realize it. You may think that you're seeking the opportunity to rule over people. To to have authority over people. To to have a, a, a visage of importance and value to the church. And Jesus is on his knees with a towel, with dirty feet, washing the grime of the road they walked on to get there. And he said, this is how you serve me. By serving those around you. He said in one of his great parables... I was sick and you didn't visit me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I, I needed a cup of water and you didn't give it to me. And, and, and the Pharisee said, what, what are you talking about? When did we see you ill or in bed? Or when did we see you in prison? Or when did you need water and we didn't give it to you? And he said, Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. God calls us to serve Him. And the way we serve Him best is by serving those around us. And I think sometimes, every once in a while, we need to take a step back. Because sometimes... I'm talking to everybody here, but I'm going to talk to church leaders especially if you're involved in the ministry or something and you're in charge of something. When you encounter people and you have an area of responsibility in the church and you see them maybe doing something they shouldn't or or maybe getting outside the, the boundaries or something like that be careful how you choose your words be careful be careful i had someone i'm just i had someone come to me recently and say i i was doing something And someone really hurt me because all they said to me was, no, you can't do that. Instead of saying, can I help you? I know that's intensely personal, but it needs to be. Because that's the way we serve God. I hope you hear what I'm saying should be a privilege to serve God it's a privilege to serve God from the time we were teenagers Barbara and I have walked together in in ministry oh we have a commitment to each other but I want to tell you that our commitment to God came first we serve God together we sang in the same youth choir we traveled together we sang together Barbara was my piano player for many and I'm talking out even before we got married when I would go places and I would preach she stood beside me in Bible college and through years filled with struggle we were married in 1969 some of you don't remember those paleolithic areas we were married in 1969 it was 54 years ago But we had already walked for a number of years together, serving God. It became the pattern of our lives. And I'm very positive. I'm very positive that many times the glue that held us together was not necessarily our commitment to one another. But the commitment we had made to God together. Final one, I'll let you go. Worship God, not comfort. Worship God, not comfort. Habakkuk 3 says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, that produce of, uh, and the pr- produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I don't know anybody who enjoys suffering. But I do know that many times we have benefited and grown through times of pain and struggle and difficulty. I, I've, I believe that it is our struggle that presses us up against God. Listen to what I'm saying. It is our struggle that pushes us up against God. When things are going great, this is going to be brutal. When things are going great, we don't pursue God. We are not conscious of our need for him. But then pain comes, struggle comes, trouble comes, and we have to find ourselves Drawing near to him. Are you celebrating God and worshiping God in the midst of your pain? Or do you seek comfort by trying to escape the pain? I've felt this for many, many years. Most of our prayers when we're going through trouble are essentially, God, could you please get me out of this? Could you please alleviate the trouble? Could you please uh, lessen the pain? And what God says, no, no. Child, I won't get you out of it, but I'll be with you all the way through it. I have never felt nearer to God than when I was in trouble and when I was struggling. When suffering comes, we have to move through the pain to the God who allowed it to come. How many of you know? I know I told I'd let you go and I will let you go, but I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. Often God brings times of struggles to draw us close, to get us to climb up in his lap and say, Abba, Father, help. That's the relationship that he wants to have. I said, boy, Barbara's going to kill me when I get home, but I'm going to talk about her again. We have many times given thanks for long days and short paychecks. For deep waters of misunderstanding and unmet expectations. I think about the loss of our son that we buried down here in Vernon. For the loss of friendships because of the call of God. The list goes on. But what pain has done is it's pressed us up against our Savior. And reminded us. We're not in control. We're not in control. Pain results in growth and greater fruitness. Pastor Brian, I'm going to be bringing it right to a close right here in a minute. Yeah, okay. Only to pray and finish. Did I? I really did take that long. Okay. He told me to pray and be quiet. All right, here we go. We worship God through music, through prayer, through God's word. But we should also worship God in the midst of our suffering. And our pain. Amen. Let's stand up together. Pastor Brian's not coming to sing a song. You'll have to endure that pain. Let's pray. Father, I know there are people in this room who've known pain. They've known struggle. They've had to sit through this nearly hour-long message. But they've endured it. And I hope it's brought all of us a little closer to you. Oh, Father, as we begin a new year, may we pursue you and not our own things. May we worship you in the midst of our trouble. So I pray for all of us who are struggling, who are hurting, who are wounded, who are broken. May we draw near to you and know your comfort and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.